The psychedelic revolution is here. If you want to integrate your visionary experiences into your purpose, get clear on your entrepreneurial path and help people while you do what you love, then this podcast is for you. Welcome to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur, medicine for these times. I'm your host, Beth Weinstein. I'm a spiritual business coach, three-time entrepreneur, and a lifelong student of psychedelics and sacred plant medicines. You carry your own unique medicine, and your medicine is what we need for these times. This podcast will help you to share your medicine so you can create transformation in the world. Listen in on conversations with psychedelic leaders, change makers, and conscious entrepreneurs who are living proof that a better world is possible when you follow your heart and live in alignment with your soul. Here is a disclaimer from Dr. Dan and his team for this episode of The Psychedelic Entrepreneur. The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendation, diagnosis, or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion and is not an endorsement of use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and the current viable widespread illegality of their usage. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Psychedelic Entrepreneur. And today I'm really excited and honored to have with you Dr. Dan Engel. Hey, Dr. Dan, thanks for being with us. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Beth. Thanks for being here. So if you don't know Dr. Dan, Dr. Dan is a psychiatrist with a clinical practice that combines aspects of regenerative medicine, psychedelic research, integrative spirituality, and peak performance. His medical degree is from the University of Texas at San Antonio. His psychiatry residency degree is from the University of Colorado, Denver, and his child and adolescent uh, psychiatry fellowship degree is from Oregon Health and Science University. Dr. Engel is an international consultant to several global healing centers, facilitating the long the use of long-standing indigenous plant medicines for healing and awakening. He is the founder and medical director of the Kuya Institute for Transformational Medicine in Austin, Texas, Full Spectrum Medicine, a psychedelic integration educational platform, and Thank You Life, a nonprofit funding system supporting access to psychedelic therapies. And be sure to look at the show notes where you can check out all the links to his work, including information on his new book. Um, Dr. Dan, let's hear your story really quick. How did you end up developing uh, your entire career around psychiatry, psychedelic medicines, now healing centers. I know you've spent a lot of time down working with indigenous uh, cultures, working with plant medicines. What brought you onto this path? I'm curious. <laughs> yeah, great question. Um, well, I started medical school in a halo. Two weeks before medical school, I dove off a pier, landed on my head in knee-high water and broke my neck, broke C5. And uh, it really changed the trajectory of where I was going in medicine. I got really interested about uh, neurology because uh, I, I didn't understand why I'd broken my neck and I didn't have any challenges because I just associated broken neck with paralysis, which is usually the case. So I got uh, super interested in neuro and that sent me further into psychiatry. And then with neuro and psychiatry under my belt, as far as my medical training went, um, after I graduated from my last fellowship, I was running clinics to help kids and adults come off of medications and we were doing great work, but there was still an aspect of like the deeper meaning, the deeper essence of it that I hadn't yet gotten in touch with or found. And shortly after, uh, really making this kind of like, uh, request to the universe, so to speak. Like, I really want to understand the deeper aspects of health and healing, particularly with myself, opening up this armored heart that I had uh, walled off uh, out of my own just complex PTSD. Then I found myself in an underground ayahuasca circle. And I learned more about myself in one weekend with ayahuasca than I had in one decade of psychotherapy training. Uh, this was about 15 years ago. Uh, so I closed up my clinic 
and made my way down to the jungle. And I lived there for a year, uh, apprenticing with uh, particular lineages of Shipibo and Quechua Lamista. And my primary teacher was a bit of a mestizo hybrid of different lineages. And being down there, living at the pace of nature, I didn't wear shoes for a year. <laughs> you know, it was very deep in the jungle. Mostly it was just me and my teacher. And it was just the constant listening and receiving information um, from the natural world about what it actually looks like for us to live in harmony with one another and create a medical system that is also in harmony um, with the greater landscape. Mm. That's so beautiful. I love that. Um, now that's a pretty deep journey living down the jungle. I usually go there once a year. It hasn't been, I haven't been in two years because of the pandemic, but it's no joke living with tarantulas and snakes and no, no internet, no Wi-Fi. Um, so then what brought you to this path of, um, recently publishing a book, uh, becoming a medical director for a completely new healing center. Um, you know, how did this come about and what has been, and then you're still running your other business, I think, right? Right. From what I understand, you know, tell us a little bit more about where you're at now and how these came about. Yeah. Yeah. So if I was to look at the three biggest events that steered me into this direction and where I'm at, uh, that would, that would have been number one, the broken neck wedge I mentioned to you. Number two, introduction to ayahuasca. And then the third one was the death of my sister. And when I had made my way back from the jungle into society at large, that was a two-year reintegration process. That's another story. Um, I was doing most of my work underground. I was still deeply invested and committed to the path. Um, but it was still pretty quiet. Like my family didn't even know I was working with ayahuasca and I was working with Aya very regularly for about eight years. They just, when, when I went down to the jungle, I just said, essentially, I'm going on sabbatical. I'm going to learn about plant medicine. And that was all true. Uh, but they didn't need to know anything about Aya at the time. Uh, so I came back and I was living in Sedona at the time and I was medically, uh, consulting and directing a few different centers, still part-time work and was pretty comfortable so to speak. And then my sister committed suicide. And uh, it was just such a big wake up and big call to action. Because um, I knew that I, I didn't want to sit on this information any further. Uh, it was a real surprise to me and our whole family. She had been um, doing really well and was sober for 14 months and then had a relapse and was gone. So I closed up my clinical affiliations, went back down to the jungle, um, started doing uh, more service work, documentary work, education advocacy work, and then all of the time getting more and more curious about developing what I would call soul-centered medicine. And Kuya has become an institute for transformational medicine. And transformational medicine is essentially the blending of what I would call hardware technologies and software technologies. The hardware technologies being more like functional medicine, regenerative medicine, on the cutting edge of what we can see biometrically, physiologically, how to upgrade the hardware, the, the computer, so to speak. The software side of things, that's the soul-centered medicine piece. That's mind-soul aspects of getting further in touch into who we are at the core of our being, being more connected into the experience of fellowship and togetherness and harmony with all the species and one another and what does it look like when we're really embodied into our purpose and our passion in a way that is actually generative for society and it's and it's contributing not extracting and it's not leaving it worse than we found it for the generations to come to kind of pick up the pieces so this this aspect is as I just got a little bit further into um, union with the vision of what was possible, then I saw, you know, how, how out of balance psychiatry particularly is right now, because we as a psychiatric industry have really sold out to the pharmaceutical model. And it's not to make pharmaceuticals wrong. It's just to recognize that that's only one piece of the pie. And at, ideally when we use pharmaceuticals, it's only for a short period of time where we're looking at the causative factors. Um, and so all of this turned into service work for me, and it's kind of like highlighted by Krishnamurti's quote, where he says, 
it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. Right? So it's, it's up to us to become whole and complete to the best of our ability and then contribute to the society's healing as well. Mm. Oh, so well said. And I love, I actually love that quote. And this has come up so much lately. You know, the last couple of years, we are faced with, you know, this pandemic. We're faced with a huge mental health crisis where I have, you know, I personally have never seen so many people coming to even me. You know, I'm not even in this realm. I don't serve medicine. I don't give medicine. I just help people really start and grow their businesses. But even the amount of people that have come to me asking, like, where can I get help? I've tried everything. I don't know where else to turn. And there is kind of this almost desperation for a lot of people. And um, the mainstream media has been reporting on psychedelics, you know, nonstop. It's like every day and there's a new article. But, um, you know, what is really happening on the front lines in this kind of psychedelic healing realm right now? Because we are seeing a growing interest. We're also seeing a health crisis. Um, you know, I, I also know that there's a opioid problem here in America, at least. Um, there's more and more addictions. You know, the traditional psychiatry has not gone away. And it's interesting that you said it's temporary because the people I know who've gone off of, um, you know, psychiatrics were on them for 15, 20 years, you know, like it just became part of life. But what do you think the direction is that we're going in, you know, with centers like Kuya, Kuya, and I know more and more centers are opening and there's more and more money going into this whole psychedelic medicine realm. But where do you think this is heading? And do you think it's heading in the right direction, essentially? <laughs> it's a great question. Yeah, I think we're going to see it stratified. Um, as most industries are stratified, there's going to be its expression in its most optimal kind of configuration, so to speak. And there's going to be the expression of it in its money-grabbing corporate kind of oversight and um, extractive um, approach. And, and not even to say that that's necessarily out of malice, um, just to recognize that a lot of money pouring into the space right now is looking at ways to maximize profit without really changing the model very much. So if we're going to give people a bunch of psychedelics, um, what does the framework look for the therapeutic process to be really maximized to help people change their relationship with themselves and their relationship with life? If that doesn't change, and we're just using psychedelics, kind of like we're using pharmaceuticals, which is, okay, this will help you feel better, but you may need to keep cycling back around in order to continue to feel better. Like ketamine therapy in many ways is practiced that way right now. It's better than pharmaceuticals for sure, has lower side effect profile. It works faster. Um, it does engender a uh, transpersonal state. Uh, we use ketamine therapy right now at Kuya because it's the one that's legal. And it's helping solidify systems and it's helping to normalize a therapeutic model that supports transpersonal states and the harvesting of that experience towards the excellence of a person's life. And when we do that with adequate preparation and adequate integration, while we're also looking at this stratified regenerative medicine, functional medicine process, now we have a more complete system. Because if somebody comes in and they say, I've had crushing chronic depression for 10, 15, 20 years, since I was an adult or even since I was a child, can you tell me if it will get any better? You know, and I'll say, yes, we can make it better for sure. We can get you into uh, a regular series of contrast therapy, hot, cold therapy, like sauna, cold plunge, sauna, cold plunge. We know that norepinephrine gets massively accelerated by both of those. When you do those together, now you get this compounded effect. We know that neuromodulation is excellent for supporting depression recovery, like that would be transcranial magnetic stimulation or even direct current stimulation. Different ways to help accelerate, harmonize, and make more coherent the neuroanatomical communication pathways. We know that ketamine can help interrupt chronic ruminative depression, especially when it's severe and especially if it has a suicidal component. So yes, we, we have all these tools. We do all of that at Kuya. We have great track record. We know you'll get better. And so 
the question that I present back to the client is, let's understand, and I wonder if you have any understanding why you're depressed in the first place, right? Symptoms are just uh, packets of information. It's like pain signaling. Like, I don't necessarily want to take away someone's pain if their pain is letting me know that they have a degenerative joint condition that needs to be assessed and remedied. If we just take away the pain, then that's like taking away an evolutionarily adaptive process for us understanding that something's out of balance and needs attention. So if we come back to Krishnamurti's statement, it's no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a sick society. Well, we don't necessarily want to be well-adjusted to something out of balance because there's a reason that we have these feedback mechanisms. So if a person is not in touch with their own genius, beauty, glory, awesomeness, then that will lead to depression or anxiety. That's the natural outcome. And it kind of depends on how your neurochemistry is built constitutionally, whether you orient more towards depression or anxiety. Some people are a bit in the middle, but, but usually it's bifurcated. And so if, if a person's not um, really turned on to their uh, purpose and their passion, like their dharma, their calling, what they're here to do, that will lead to depression and anxiety. If a person has had the experience of longstanding trauma where they weren't um, told that they were awesome and given validation and supported in establishing safety and security within themselves and intimacy and relationship, and they don't have connection with a partner in a way that's safe and secure, that will lead to depression and anxiety. If we're living in a society where we can see at the current trajectory, this is not a sustainable path, and if you look on the news and you see a lot of still global trauma, human to human, as well as human to species, there's a massive amount of like angst in the system. And if we're just trying to numb out to the angst, then nothing's going to change. And I get the sense that we've come in to be a part of this change so that the generations to come don't have to clean up our mess. So we're at this inflection point, and I think it's like the, the classic time in the hero's journey where you're not quite sure if the hero or the heroine is going to make it through. And luckily, there's this divine intervention that comes and supports the process. Well, I think psychedelic therapy, when done well, is like this divine intervention that is really helping us become more whole, become more clear, and become more of service. Mm. Oh, I, I love that you brought this up because I've actually spoken about this so much. I'm like, it's not that the medicine is just here to fix the depression and anxiety. It's that it needs to uncover what's at the root of it all. Because I, this is the one beef I've had with the mainstream media for many years, which is why I was called to discuss this intersection of like having purpose, having a career that you love, doing conscious entrepreneurship, um, being in service to others and having that place that's that's guided by your heart that makes you feel that fulfillment to get out of bed every morning and feel like you are contributing in some way to what you're here to do on the planet. Um, because what I saw over my own career with my experience, you know, my experience within just even within medicine communities, psychedelic communities was that so many people were turning to the medicine, the medicine, the medicine, getting the, you know, the quick fix and then just going back to status quo life and nothing was changing. And I'm like, well, it's not about just feeling good for a month or two. It's about really starting to get to that root problem that you said that's under what's what's actually causing the depression or anxiety. And in my world, I, it was a lot of people's misaligned careers or jobs that they didn't like or living a life that was pretty much a lie or struggling to get by doing something that they hated or whatever it was. Um, so I love that you bring this up and talk about this regenerative kind of, you know, the sustainable model of health and well-being. And um, you also mentioned optimization, you know, I know there's a lot of people who are actually functioning well enough, right? And then... It's like, well, how about thriving versus surviving? Um, so this is also what I want to talk about. So you also mentioned preparation, integration. You mentioned other therapeutic um, modalities and tools, you know, the the plunging, the um, probably you, you have breath work and sound. Um, what else is going on at Kuya? Because this has come up for so many people, um, you know, clients of mine who do psychedelic assisted coaching or psychedelic integration coaching or, 
healing modalities, that it's uh, it's not just about the psychedelic. It's about bringing in all these different modalities. So what is your take on this? Like where do, where does preparation, integration, and then the, the non-psychoactive modalities, where do they all fit in into the larger piece mm-hmm. of, of healing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's another great question. Your, your questions are on the leading edge of where we're going as an industry and as a culture. And this movement, this medicine kind of process, this like the next phase of this psychedelic renaissance is an example of taking parts of the system that work really well, maximizing the, the efficacy of those therapeutics, rehabilitating the parts of the system that don't work very well, and creating from the existing models that do work, creating a new system where it's more harmonious, it's made more whole. We can't help people become whole until until our system is whole. And that's a part of our challenge and our opportunity. And so I do believe Kuya is going to be one of those voices, and I expect there will be others. I hope there's others. I mean, we have a ton of work to do. And as more of the voices of this kind of holism movement, so to speak, particularly as it relates to psychiatry, come online, we're going to see more and more of this critical mass and this threshold that we're approaching, I think, pretty quickly, um, partly because of the interest and people's stories, partly because of the data, and partly because of a lot of interest and money that's coming into the space, right? So data moves science, but story moves culture, and we're seeing the intersection of these happen. And so as we bring in these stacked therapeutics, it's helpful to simplify it to the extent like, okay, this is something that's going to support up-leveling the hardware. This is something that's going to support up-leveling the software. If we're looking at a computer and you want better performance in the computer, then you need to address both of those. And then you've got the user interface and like the experiential part of it. So when we have something like an Institute for Transformational Medicine, our job is not only to provide clinical excellence, it's also to provide educational excellence because we don't, we're not in the industry to give people fish. I mean, we have great fish and our fish is super good. (laughs) People want to come back. Ultimately though, our best service is to help people learn how to fish on their own so that it becomes a sustainable model for them so that we just get the opportunity to help them become more whole, get super jazzed about their life again and you know, set them sail once they're clarified in their trajectory, what they're here to do. And then we also offer a supportive community so that not only, because most of the time in, in like, particularly with mental health and psychiatric and psychological f- clinical frameworks, the healing is done in isolation. It's not done in community. And so that's the third piece, you know, the transformational stack, the therapeutic arm of what we do. I mentioned just a few of those. Secondly is the educational piece. And thirdly is the community piece. So that we, we're creating a, trans, a transformative community and a community of like-minded brothers and sisters, so to speak, on the path that are just recognizing that we're all human. Whether you're going from an optimization place from good to great, or you're going through a healing phase and an experiential process that recognizes that crisis precedes transformation every time. And so can we give you the educational framework to actually lean into that crisis, knowing that it's signaling something that's out of balance, we can support you in that. And as it becomes more whole and complete, then we can also continue to support you through this transformational community. And maybe you even want to come back to the community to be a part of and support somebody else's transformation, right? Like a peer-to-peer and a peer-to-mentor kind of relationship. So we're we're looking at it from multiple different lenses. And so when we talk about stacking the therapeutics, I love geeking out on that kind of stuff. It's like me in the lab and just figuring out what works well. And and also to, to recognize that the alchemy is not only figuring out what ingredients to put into the pot, but it's recognizing how to create the recipe so that you have a better chance for an excellent experience. Just because we have a lot of ingredients, if you throw everything in the pot, <laughs> sometimes it creates beauty and sometimes it creates chaos. Or 
if we could th think about refining it even further, is like, okay, these are the ingredients in a therapeutic model, but how do we know which order to put them in? Or if a person's even ready? Like many people aren't even ready for a psychedelic experience. So your point about breath work is very good. Flotation is very good. We have a series of float tanks in our space because it's like meditation on steroids. And if it's hard for you to hold yourself together in a float tank, it might be hard for you to hold yourself together in a psychedelic state. And so all of these are priming greater self-regulation, greater self-introspection, greater self towards realization, actualization, understanding. You know, everything in the universe evolves. So thankfully we evolve and we're all evolving towards more and more realization. Love is the kind of the fuel behind that. So we want to bring together a stacked therapeutic process that helps us uncover where are our blockages to self-love to loving life, to loving ourselves, to loving one another. Usually it's through a series of traumas that cut us off from that initially. And so if we can uncover that, uncover the core wounds of abandonment, rejection, humiliation, betrayal, you know, those things that sting in there or stay with us for a while, set up complex PTSD experiences or expressions. Once we start to unravel those core wounds and we also look at the hardware side of things. So if somebody has hypothyroidism, that needs to be addressed. If they have a chronic uh, viral infection or mold infection, that needs to be addressed. Or if they've had a head injury and their master glands are shut, shut down, you know, all of these are organic physiologic causative factors. So we have to understand that it's not all about I mean, ultimately, if you talk about it from a philosophical perspective, yes, we're energetic beings, we're spiritual beings in a physical body, we're going through this process of evolution. It is all about the psyche and our souls. Yes, that's true. And it's really hard for people that have an organic ideology to continue to have the faith and the perseverance for their body to catch up where their mind's at. So if we want to like give somebody the best chance for success and recovery, then we're addressing the hardware issues too. So we do a series of biometrics, neurometrics, like what's the status quo of the hardware? And then we do a series of psychometrics and life metrics. What's the status quo of the software? And so we get a really good picture of where a person's kind of at when they come in. And then we put them through our suite of services. And then we get a snapshot at the end of that active phase of treatment to, to show them and us like, okay, what's changed? And we're collecting as much of the data as we can, because as we mentioned before, culture moves, you know, culture is moved by story, but science is really moved by the data. So we need to have both. Uh, so I, I'm a fan of creating and cultivating the data models, because I want to see transformational medicine outlive you and I. I want it to be here for generations and generations and generations. And I want that to support the next model after that and the next model after that. We just recognize like allopathic medicine turned into functional medicine. And that's kind of the status quo right now. It's still good, but it's still reductionistic. Now functional medicine is turning into transformational medicine. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a more whole and complete picture. Mm. I, yeah, I, I want to ask about this because this... This feels like the real whole holistic model of medicine where it isn't about the quick fix. It isn't about just putting a Band-Aid on the problem, but it's about actually teaching people how to self-heal, how to actually go within. I mean, you're, you're addressing all aspects of healing, you know, the physical, the core wounds, the trauma, the PTSD, the consciousness. Um, and it's, it's fascinating the amount of interest that has shown up in healing centers over the years. I cannot tell you the amount of people that come to me saying, my dream is to open a healing center um, because we all see the need for this. You know, we all see the need to retreat somewhere or to be in community or be in a safe space where you can dive into any of these tools or modalities. Um, but here's the question I have, because it is it is so new, and I put that in quotes because essentially this is ancient healing um, just for today's day, right? It's like this is how our ancestors did it. But um, what about, let's say, accessibility? You know, obviously 
this world that we're in doesn't quite serve all people and all income levels, especially here in the U.S. Um, we all see this this problem, and it's it seems to be coming seems to be worse and worse every day. How do we make these kind of centers? Because even just listening to you, I'm like. Wow, I wonder how much that would be to go there and just hang out for a few weeks and like heal everything. Um, <laughs> I'm sure it's not like that, by the way. Um, but you know, how do we make this model more affordable, more accessible to all people? Like, is it just starting with this kind of beta test model and then hopefully scaling it? And you know, obviously in scale, everything's reduced. Or is you know, are there? I doubt there's insurance, but do you take insurance? You know, how how do we make these healing centers a reality in the world that we live in, especially here in America? Another fabulous question. <laughs> you know, we we want to see these kinds of therapeutics be available for everybody. And that's a part of this recognition that we're all interconnected. And what I want for myself Ideally, I want for everybody else. And we're all going for, like the Dalai Lama says, we're all going for the same things. Health, happiness, freedom. We're all in the same hairless monkey suit, just experiencing life through different eyes and different, like, you know, ego constructs. But at the end of the day, we're all interconnected. And so we're only going to go as far as all of us go together. So we're seeing more and more of this like, income inequality. And ideally, that starts to get rectified in some kind of capacity. Our opportunity as a medical industry is to start bridging the gap. And in any new industry, the new technologies are more expensive because they haven't been proven. And once they're proven and once demand, so once you, you prove that something works and is helpful, and then you increase the demand because people recognize it's important and they want part of that too, and then you also bridge that gap by supporting legislation and people who are in charge, so to speak. And if that's politicians make, allowing psychedelic therapies to be legal again, if it's insurance providers supporting reimbursement models for the therapeutics that are offered that we know are effective, if it's small business owners being able to put some of their dollars in the company towards their own employees' benefit, um, there are a variety of ways that we can bring and weave that whole model together. I don't think we have all the answers yet. Uh, I do think we are part of the conversation. And what I can see, the benefit of being specifically oriented to not only having excellent therapeutics, but also tracking the data, is I want to be able to talk to insurance providers about the efficacy of our model. Because right now, if you look at the average cost that a given uh, person in an insurance panel will generate towards supporting services for chronic severe depression, the insurance companies are going to pay about $16,000 per year on average for anybody with chronic severe depression. That might include hospitalizations, psychotherapy, medications, seeing the physician, etc. We know that for less than that, we can put somebody through an intensive process and have a high degree of likelihood that their depression is going to either be cured or significantly improved so that they have better um, self-worth, they have better initiation and motivation because they're inspired for life, they're more connected to their own uh, intelligence, greatness, beauty, like all of the awesomeness that makes them important on the planet right now. And then with all of that, um, there's, there's more of a generative capacity as opposed to feeling weighed down and, and stymied or you know suffering through their symptoms. So all of this is part of the, the telling a new story. Like, okay, if you, if you take your existing monetary output and, and direct that to a different therapeutic model, and that we can show that this other therapeutic model is not only effective therapeutically, it's also cost-effective. Now we have a lot of um, evidence. I was going to say ammunition. You know, being in Texas, kind of, I'm, I'm back in Texas. <laughs> I'm, I'm experiencing the the neologisms and the and the the things coming back. But we have more evidence to go to 
the policy holders and change makers to be able to support equal access for everybody. Because we do want these therapeutics to be available. Right now, MDMA therapy, uh, out of pocket, is expected to cost about $16,000. And that's because we don't yet have reimbursement models. And it's a new technology. And it's eventually going to be a lot more cost effective. But there are people like my older sister Trudy dying every day out of their own choice because their suffering is just incomprehensibly uh, exhausting. And if you haven't been in it, it's hard to understand it. And, and because there are people in our own country right now dying uh, on the order of about 120 to 130 suicides per day in the United States, we have therapeutics that are very good. And so it's, it's slow taking something like MDMA from Schedule 1, which is totally illegal, and reclassifying that. So MAPS is doing an amazing job. And I do believe that we're about, according to my last conversation with Rick Doblin, the head of MAPS, we're about 18 months away from legalization. And then there will be the implementation of that. Uh, Oregon just passed psilocybin as a psychotherapeutic tool last November. And there will be more and more time required for its kind of implementation. So we're, you know, industries and institutions change over a long period of time. And so we have to kind of take a step back and recognize like, oh, we're actually making progress. When we're in the weeds of it, I, I get impatient because I just know, like, these things work. Let's find a way to make them work as and implement it as quick as possible. We also want to do that in a way that make sure that the clinical excellence that we provide comes from a place of safety and delivery um, to secure the best chance of success. And we don't want to give the skeptics and the doubters any more ammunition to believe that we're not ready for these to be legal. So I think MAPS and Rick have done an amazing job at, at just consistently showing up to the table of conversation and um, drawing the feds into this potential change. It hasn't happened yet, so it's not totally slam dunk, but we have all indications to expect that it will be. And then once that happens with more and more data collection and and setting up funding streams, like that's part of what Thank You Life is. It's a non profit funding stream to support the scholarship of um, this kind of medicine work for people who wouldn't be able to afford it themselves. So we're trying to do as best we can to, to fill in all of the kind of the gaps, so to speak. Your questions and your kind of orientation is really spot on. Um, and I think there are more and more organizations that are going to come into this with altruistic intention. And I just hope they don't get seduced by the profit potential because we don't need to create uh, more of what's been here. We actually need to rehabilitate the entire model. And that's going to require a lot of people's willingness to, to do the good work on behalf of the collective and not so much on behalf of like self-serving interests. Yeah. The same broken system repeated, just a new, a new business. Yeah, that was actually going to be a lot of my next question. I, I do have to say, I love that you mentioned all the data collection. This is important, creating the demand. This is actually the Uber business model. If no one knows that, that was actually how Uber started to create more demand before the supply. And that way, hey, there, there you go. You then provide all the supply and now look at Uber, right? Like it's everywhere. Um, so I do think it's important. And I, a couple questions about what's actually happening on the front lines when it comes to investors looking into investing into this kind of new, I put that in quotes, unproven business model, um, because it is, you know, it's new to our society right now. Um, one, you know, I'm wondering what the feel is out there when it comes to the investment and the capital. I know there's a lot going on in investing into psychedelics. There's, you know, new companies popping up left and right. There's funds, there's, you know, companies going public. Um, but then also, how does this fit into, I hate playing devil's advocate, but that's what I'm here to do. 
big pharma and what about them and what about all the the lobbying power and the power that you know our medical system really has at least here in America but i see this as a worldwide issue where it's you know they're pretty much uh you know, ruling our system on some level, you know, because so much of people's survival depends on these systems that are essentially what I would call broken, that really don't serve. And this, here you are with Kuya, and I know there's some other people working on very similar things, trying to recreate these completely new human-centered, service-centered business models, but that serve humans, but they don't serve, like you just said, like, the money or the big pharma or the bottom line or the lobbyists or, um, you know, let's get real here, the political leaders that are have their hands tied up in all these systems. Um, what about them? You know, so where do they come in and how, you know, have you heard anything? Have you heard criticism? Do they want to get involved? Are they threatened? You know, and, and what I, I also wonder the investors, like what is their take on, you know, the people who are willing to put money into this? Are they seeing this as two models that could live together? Or is this like people like me, you know, I only live in the world of this model because I don't even really do Western medicine period anymore. Um, you know, at least not for the most part, but yeah. What is, what is the reality of that? These are good questions too. And I know it's a lot. I, yeah. Ideally, those that are in the positions of change and positions of decision making, whether they're on the political side or the or the investor side, ideally those people have gone through their own transformative experience. Because if they haven't gone through it, then they're making decisions about an industry that they don't really know. And there is a ton of money coming in to psychedelic therapy. There are two organizations just by themselves that are valued at around just shy of $4 billion. Those are only two. And there are many organizations. And like you mentioned, there are more organizations popping up every day. If the, the political leaders and the investors themselves don't have an understanding of transformation, then it's going to be really hard for them to vision what's possible and make decisions accordingly to allow that transformational experience to be the most effective, the most salient, and the most supportive for the collective, not just a small group of people. So is, so let me just kind of answer each of those questions. Um, I think you could orient to something like a B Corp model, right? A for benefit model, or a people, planet, profit model versus a primary profit model or an extractive model. So there are new business orientations. There are new business models. We have an excellent relationship with all of our investors uh, and they actually don't have primary say in the direction of the company because they're trusting us to be leaders in the field and it's not philanthropy. They're still in it to get a return on their investor investment. Um, but that's not the prime objective. That's not the prime directive and it's not their prime involvement. So we're pretty um, selective with who we bring on as an investor team. We want their values to be aligned and directed with ours. So that's just us as an organization with Kuya. And I think the more that happens, the more um, aligned we can all be towards creating a new model. Uh, and that's not to say that the investors coming in um, don't have their own um, input. Like we want input from our entire team. We have a board of advisors and we have a board of our investors and I want input from everybody because I don't know what I don't know. I know medicine work really well. I don't know entrepreneurship that well. <laughs> That's why I've got a team of people who are able to implement the vision of what I can see happening in medicine and put that into the operations and manifestation. Um, so as much as all of the stakeholders, so to speak, are aligned to creating this new model of regenerative care, of transformational medicine, and being able to scale that in a way that supports the collective to the greatest degree, then I think we're orienting um, to really creating sustainable change. And then if we look at it on the side of the disruptive technology, any disruptive technology is going to get backlash. 
because it, by design, it's going to disrupt <laughs> what's already in place. And whoever's invested in keeping the current model in place is probably going to get their hackles up. And so I don't um, uh, talk myself into believing that we're not going to get resistance. I just get curious about how we can work with the resistance. And if it can be kind of like a process of like Aikido, where if somebody's giving me a lot of resistance or they're coming at me in an attacking style, can I use that energy to create harmony or create a conversation or to create actually a reflective process that recognizes like, okay, I understand that you're invested in keeping the status quo as it is. Can you tell me why? You know, and if, if I get in the like weeds with them and their thought process, then usually we can have a generative conversation. If it comes down to money, then, okay, let's talk about that and how this model actually might be more generative for financial benefit to the collective. That takes a rehabilitation of the entire system and it would take time. But I can understand because we're all doing the best we know how to do given the tools that we have. Um, there are things that I'm attached to that might not actually be awesome ideas. And if I can be kind of flexible to get the orientation or at least be open to the people that would want me to kind of come over to their side. And if I can just like get into a collaborative model, wonderful. Now we can actually make change. If I'm trying to talk to people who are so entrenched and I can feel like if I, cause I speak to a, a teams of physicians and grand rounds. And if I know I'm going in and talking to a, a field of skeptics, I just start with data. I'm like, okay, if you're a team of physicians like I am, then you took an oath to do your best work on behalf of your clients and your patients. And that means it's it's actually part of your oath and imperative to stay up to speed on the latest research. So let me give you unbiased research. And let's also recognize that if you're like me as a physician, if I'm going to my medical journal, then I have to know that there's publication bias in that medical journal which means like 93% of the positive studies are reported and only like 6 to 7% of the negative studies are reported. So like that's not unbiased. So do we know where we're getting our information from? Is it biased or not? Can we do our due diligence? And it takes a bucket load of work to do that and make sure that we're getting data from the right sources or at least look at everybody's opinion and then make our own choice and, and do our own kind of like um, truth-telling and, and decision-making. And so if we get towards reclaiming like the, 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 the community voice, the grassroots movement, and that's how big change typically happens is it starts with a small group of people like Margaret Mead, never underestimate a small group of people to change the face of the world because that's all whoever has. And so it's starting small, words getting out, psychedelic therapies and medicines are here to stay. It's not a matter of if they're going to become legal, but how and when, and we get to be a part of that kind of decision-making process. So the pharmaceutical industry is seeing this, yes, as a threat, but also as an opportunity. But if we're still staying with the model, like, okay, now let's move from antidepressants to ketamine therapy and not do any of the other work. Like that means we can keep people on a ketamine treadmill for, you know, some untold series of sessions and period of time. It's a better model for sure. It's safer. It's more effective, usually requires less treatments understood, but it's still not a complete model. And so you have a lot of industry, a lot of companies right now that are looking at novel therapeutics and novel analogs of existing psychedelics, like creating the new LSD, one molecule removed, or creating the new psilocybin, one molecule removed, or creating, you know, the next thing, and that's all, that's okay because it's innovation. It will support positive change. However, it's still only part of the model if we're not talking about the entire field of a transformational arc to, to support somebody through. What's the end goal? If the end goal is having an ongoing annuity through the continuation of medication refills, then that's a different outcome then if the goal is to create whole, healthy, happy humans that are here to offer their best service to the world, because the world needs that right now, by the way. And if we don't do that relatively quickly, then we have the opportunity 
to no longer be the dominant species on the planet. That's happened before and it might happen again. And maybe that's part of why we came in is to be like, you know, the in the in the throes of the hero and the heroine's journey where you're not sure that they're going to make it out. <laughs> We're kind of globally living that collective process right now. And we don't know how it's going to turn out, but we have the opportunity to do our best work and, um, you know, get radically curious about the outcome. Beautiful, beautiful answer. Thank you so much. This is a, no, it's in, you know, I hate to play devil's advocate, but it's so good to explore this. You know, it's, it's also interesting to watch this unfold and see, wow, how quick things are changing. And like you said, it's not if it's changing, it's just, it is, you know, it's a matter of when. Um, one last question before uh, we kind of close up here. Um, I'm curious with the growth in, you know, psychedelic assisted therapies and these healing centers and people who keep talking about opening up healing centers, do you think there will always be room for, you know, the underground ayahuasca ceremonies or the small healing circles or the, you know, one-on-one -on -one facilitator with mushrooms? Like, do you think there's still going to be this, you know, underground or will this just become like you know, only in the mainstream and only available? Like, do you think that's still gonna, they're both gonna live together in the future? I expect so. I hope so. Uh, I'm not sure I'm, 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 I'm allowed to legally say that <laughs> because, you know, ayahuasca is illegal in the United States and you have to be really careful. And not everybody's ready for an aya circle and not everybody should be in an aya circle. We don't have enough ayahuasca. If you're just, if we're just talking about sustainability on the planet. Right. If we're talking about harvest rates, ayahuasca is becoming harvested and endangered. Peyote has been endangered. Iboga was almost eradicated completely because of overharvesting. And all of this also has a negative impact to many of the local communities where these medicines are grown. So we have to think about sustainability. We have to think about reciprocity. We have to think about generating a reciprocal relationship with the communities where a lot of these medicines come from so that the communities thrive too. And that we're not just extracting medicines or resources or goods or commodities um, to the detriment of those local communities, which has happened many times in the past. Whereas the the, the colonialization and kind of the, the powers that be, the white man specifically, has gone down to the jungle, first for rubber, then for oil, and now for ayahuasca. Wade Davis has this excellent book called One River where he just really highlights that, and it's true. So we have to think about that. And I think that's a part of our opportunity. Our, the name of our center is Kuya, and that means love in Quechua. And, and we wrestled with the decision to use an indigenous word because we don't want to be seen um, or have others experience us as extractive or... Um, appropriating a cultural um, even word, not, not, not to mention tradition. Um, but at the end of the day, we recognize too that love is the heartbeat of the universe. It's the co-creative um, process that has stimulated all life in the universe, and it's continuously fueling our, evolu our evolution. Thankfully, we're always a little bit net positive, you know, in, in, in like the 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 dark side of the force and the light side of the force, so to speak. If it was net negative, then we wouldn't survive and this evolutionary thing wouldn't continue. So thankfully it's all net positive. And generally I, I think where we're going in this kind of renaissance is the recognition that these medicines have a clinical and a therapeutic appropriate place. And it's super valuable to have the intimacy of a traditional medicine process that's facilitated well, where people are screened for safety and they don't have contraindications, and that the experience that's being offered be one of reverence and be one of connected to all aspects of ourself, including the deepest parts of our own soul. And through that process that we get reconnected with the soul of the world and then we get reconnected with Mother Nature herself. And we recognize that if we continue to have an extractive mindset and just decimate the planet, then we're actually um, burning our own house down 
and no person in their own right mind would do that. So as we come into better relationship with, with the harvesting and sustainable regenerative agricultural practices and reciprocal community practices of these natural medicines, uh, I think there's going to be a, a right place for that. And that also speaks to the benefit of synthetics like MDMA and LSD and ketamine because those, those can be manufactured and scaled with consistent purity and potency. So there's a safety aspect. There's a beneficial aspect to having both. I, for a long time, was a very adamant medicine, organic medicine purist. And when I was studying with only ayahuasca, if you told me I was going to be running a ketamine clinic, I would have said you were crazy because why would I want to work with a synthetic dissociative anesthetic? And then my sister died and I realized like, wow, okay, it's up to me to understand all the medicines and to recognize like all the medicines have their right place. Pharmaceuticals have their right place. Surgical care has its right place. And so does chiropractic care and naturopathic care and Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and, and, and all of the complementary medical disciplines. So yes, I think there's going to be a continued opportunity for us to have these, these more intimate indigenous practices be kept in more of their like um, true essence, as well as bringing into the therapeutic and clinical model a same flavor of a transformational arc being possible. Mm. Beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. This is such an important conversation. And thankfully, majority of the conversations I have, this does come up. So it is being discussed. It is being put into practice. There are more and more, you know, nonprofits and people giving back. And hopefully this is built into the business models of all the psychedelic businesses that are launching and that are out there, which I, I think so far, most that I've talked to, it is. So hopefully that's my prayer. But Dr. Dan, um, Last thing, so tell people a little bit more about where they can find you, a little bit about your book, what it is that you offer, how they can get in touch with you, follow you, and what's upcoming for you next. Mm. Yeah, thanks for asking, Beth. Uh, so our center is Kuya. Uh, the URL there is www.kuya.life. So Kuya meaning love and life meaning like the interconnectivity. Uh, it was pretty funny when we when we realized that that was going to be the URL because it's essentially helping people come back to loving life. So kuya.life uh, is where you can find us. Uh, we just opened less than a week ago. We just opened last Friday. So it's kind of timely for us to have this conversation. Um, we do see clients locally and at a distance. So if people come in for two-week immersions, then uh, we have them connected to local Airbnbs or um, small, really well-run hotels. And then they're there with us like nine to nine every day for a two-week process. Um, so the book that you mentioned is A Dose of Hope. Uh, it's a story about MDMA psychotherapy. And it is, it's a fictional narrative that walks a person through the experience of what it would be like for most people to go through that kind of therapeutic process. The average reader through this parable gets a sense of the experience with ever have, without ever having to do it or even having to go to a doctor's office. So it kind of opens the gate for that information. There's a lot of pretty awesome pearls and pieces of wisdom. I've had, it's been really awesome to have a lot of my colleagues say how much they enjoyed the book because they got a lot out of it as well. Um, so that was what we essentially wanted to do. Um, our nonprofit that we mentioned, thinkyoulife.org, uh, is a funding stream to support people um, to be able to go through medicine-supported experiences. At this point, it's ketamine because that's the one that's legal. Once MDMA and psilocybin become legal, we will support people as a funding stream to work with those tools as well. Um, Full Spectrum Medicine is an educational advocacy platform uh, where I've run uh, free integration calls for th almost four years now. And we've cataloged a lot of those calls in our database. And that's all free information so people can just get um, the, the, some of the teachings that I've received and some of the um, tools for preparing and integrating after a big medicine experience. We created a community to support people's process 
uh, of feeling like they were connected to people also similarly going through a transformative experience. And so that speaks to the community aspect. Um, and there's probably more, but I think that's, that's probably good for now. <laughs> I'm like, what don't you do? Wow. Uh, Dr. Dan Engel, it was such an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for this work that you're doing with Kuya and your own work, your book, you know, your integration circles. I've been following your work for a while. Um, if you haven't checked it out, I interviewed Dan, Dr. Dan last year, and it was one of my favorite interviews of all time. You are just um, full of wisdom and knowledge and just such a big heart. Um, nothing but love and gratitude for this work that you're doing. It does give me a lot of hope for the future and, you know, of healthcare, of healing, of uh, trauma and a better planet for all in, in all ways. So thank you so much for being here. Mm -hmm. uh -oh. Thank you, Beth, for having me. Thank you. And join us next week. We're, we're going to have another episode on Tuesday. We'll see you then. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're feeling inspired, I'd appreciate it if you showed your love with a review. And check out my YouTube channel where you can find the video version of this podcast. You can also head to BethAWeinstein.com to learn more about me and grab my free business growth trainings. Remember, you carry your own unique medicine and your medicine is what we need for these times. <laughs>